The first temptation is to say that tradition has abandoned WrestleMania. That this grand spectacle, this enticing blend of celebrity and athleticism has been taken hostage by a new generation of rogues. The baddest man on the planet, the toughest SOB, the reigning champion and number one degenerate. These are men determined to write their own destiny. To hell with historians who will pen their tale. But tradition is indeed alive and well. Because, after all, despite the brash bravado, it's the allure of World Wrestling Federation gold that has brought these men here tonight. The very belt that immortalized Andre, Hulk, and San Martino. The symbol of excellence that inspired Gorilla Monsoon, the big cat Ernie Ladd, classy Freddie Blassie. A lineage created by Vincent J. McMahon some 50 years ago. So tonight, through sacrifice and pain, through breathtaking displays of athleticism that defy mortal boundaries, these men that shun tradition are destined to become part of it. It's WrestleMania, the grandest of spectacles, the showcase of the immortals, a time to revel in the occasion. And somewhere beyond the spotlights, the father of the World Wrestling Federation will revel in it too. Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Huge Pex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at Raw Attitude Pod. And of course, do not forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher as well. Now, before we begin this week, a quick shout out to guest co-host Martin Dixon for joining the show last week. He did a great job and he's been an advocate for the podcast almost since day one. So please be sure to check him out on the New Blood Rising podcast and read his columns on unappreciatedscholars.com. Great insight from a great guy. So definitely be sure to seek him out and hopefully we can have him back on the podcast again sometime soon. And now, without any further ado, Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell how excited you are because it's time for WrestleMania 14, the granddaddy of them all, the showcase of the immortals, an affair which promises to be X-rated, that's R-A-I-D-E-D, with the main event consisting of Shawn Michaels defending his WWF championship against Stone Cold Steve Austin, while DX member Mike Tyson looks on from outside the ring as the special guest enforcer. As the DX band might say... Are you ready? Well, then let's get down to business. It is Sunday, March 29th, 1998, and we are live from the Fleet Center in Boston, Massachusetts, my city, in front of a sellout crowd of 19,028 fans. As you may know, WrestleMania typically begins with an individual or group, usually a celebrity or famous band, singing the national anthem and or America the Beautiful. But strangely, if you're watching WrestleMania 14 on the WWE Network or the DVD release, we actually go straight into the first match. 
How odd. So does that mean that the WWF decided not to have someone sing these songs this year? Well, no. Rest assured, there was a performance of both the National Anthem and America the Beautiful, and the reason why you can't view that performance is because the WWE does not want you to see it. Why is that? Because the band who performed those patriotic songs were the aforementioned DX band. How bad could those performances possibly be, though, right? I mean, this was a time when the WWF was really eager to capitalize on that rebellious mentality that D-Generation X was espousing at all times. Everything had to be changed, Grandpa, and that included the Star Spangled Banner. I'm going to play a quick mashup of the, quote, alternative versions of those songs that the DX band sang that night. It lasts about 75 seconds, and I say that in advance because I would not blame you if you wanted to skip the podcast ahead to about a minute and 15 seconds from now, but I think you should listen to this because it's a great time capsule of where the WWF's mindset was at this time in 1998. So take it away, Chris Warren. By the dawn turning light With so proudly they have At the twilight Freedom of expression indeed, JR, including the freedom for those Boston fans to boo the DX band right out of the building. I guess that's what happens when you piss people off in America. Oh, sorry, pardon me. I meant to say that's what happens when you piss people off in America. All right, so clearly we're off to a bit of a bumpy start, but now let's get into the actual wrestling. Our first match on the card is a 15-team battle royal where the winning team will get a shot at the WWF Tag Team Titles. You mean they get a shot at the titles tonight at WrestleMania on the biggest show of the year? Uh, well, no, we're actually just using this WrestleMania match to set up a match at next month's In Your House Unforgiven pay-per-view. Yay? The rules of the match are that when one person from the team gets tossed over the top rope, the other member of the team must automatically leave the ring as well, which seems a bit silly. I mean, why not just let the other guy keep wrestling and continue representing the team, instead of having referees make him stop fighting and tell him to exit the ring? Seems a bit kooky. So who are these 15 teams? Let's run down the list. The New Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, the Godwins, the Headbangers, the Quebecers, DOA members Skull and 8-Ball, Nation of Domination members Kama Mustafa and Farouk, and yes, you may recall that they ran an angle on Raw last week where The Rock hit Farouk with a chair and Farouk was diagnosed with a concussion, but don't worry, he's still wrestling tonight. Nation of Domination members D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry, Los Bariquas members Savio Vega and Miguel Perez, Los Bariquas members Jose Estrada and Jesus Castillo, 
former Truth Commission members Sniper and Recon, Chains and Bradshaw, okay, that one makes no sense, Flash Funk and Steve Blackman, okay, that one really makes no sense, unless you want to name that team the Funky Blackman. We also got the debut of a team called Too Much, which consisted of Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor, who just might end up getting repackaged as a different team a little further down the line. And speaking of repackaging, the final team in the match is a mystery team which gets introduced last, and that team is LOD2000, being accompanied to the ring by Sonny in an outfit which is truly a sight to behold for all of the best reasons. As you might expect, they get a great pop from the crowd, along with the requisite LOD chants. However, you may recall the last time we saw the Legion of Doom was five weeks ago on an episode of Raw where their lengthy losing streak caused them to get in each other's faces and brawl on numerous occasions, resulting in the official breakup of the team. With no real explanation given, Sonny has somehow arranged for Hawk and Animal to reunite and mend the fences. Also, much like we saw earlier tonight with the National Anthem, the Legion of Doom were just too old and uncool. Well, LOD2000 ain't yo daddy's Legion of Doom because they now have new entrance music, new face paint, new shoulder pads, new haircuts, new ring attire, and new motorcycle helmets with shaded visors and mean-looking skulls painted on them. So how did LOD2000 fare in the WrestleMania 14 Battle Royal? Well, our final three teams were LOD, the New Midnight Express, and the Godwins. Henry and Phineas were actually eliminated by Skull and 8-Ball, who had already been eliminated themselves, which doesn't really seem fair. For some reason, the Godwins then attacked Hawk and Animal with slot buckets instead of going after the DOA, so the New Midnight Express were in prime position to win the match. However, Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart (sighs) were unable to capitalize on the momentum as Hawk and Animal recovered and soon clotheslined both of them over the top rope. Your winners and the new number one contenders for the WWF Tag Team titles at next month's pay-per-view, LOD 2000. Will they end up returning to their former glory and taking the belts from whichever team is holding them at the time? Stay tuned to find out. Our next match is for the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship, Champion Taka Michinoku versus Challenger Aguila. As of this point in time, Taka is the first and still the only Light Heavyweight Champion in WWF history, having won the belt at December's In Your House Degeneration X pay-per-view. This was a very solid match, short but fast-paced with a lot of high spots, not bad at all. The match ended when Aguila attempted a crossbody onto Taka from the second rope, but instead Taka dropkicked him in the ribs in midair. He then picked Aguila up and hit him with the Michinoku driver, a scoop slam pile driver, to pick up the three count and retain his title. Good solid fun in my book. Now if only the head writer knew that these two guys came from different countries. If you want Lucha Libras, whatever you call them, go to, J- go to Japan. We now cut to a pre-taped segment where Jennifer Flowers interviews The Rock. Because Jennifer was involved in a, ahem, relationship with Bill Clinton, the current U.S. president at the time, the interview mostly consisted of her asking The Rock about what his policies would be like if he were president. Last week I mentioned that Jennifer's segment was noteworthy from a historical perspective, and the reason why is because The Rock chooses to debut one of his trademark catchphrases during this interview. All right, then, um, how about the judicial system? Well, first and foremost, as long as all The Rock's fans across the country realized that The Rock is the judge and the jury, everything should be fine. And actually, hmm, well, actually, Jenny, after The Rock contemplated that for a second. If The Rock were the jury, The Rock feels like this. Nine times out of ten, he'd be a hung jury if you smell what I'm cooking. 
That's right, The Rock debuted what most people would likely consider to be his signature catchphrase in a pre-taped segment with one of Bill Clinton's mistresses. I didn't see that one coming either. As a quick side note, though, it's been fun to see how much more comfortable The Rock is getting in his promos since I started doing this podcast. If you go back and watch the first few episodes of Raw that I covered, those promos he cut were actually pretty rough, but you can see he is now fully settling into his role as the overconfident dickhead heel, and it's a thing of beauty. I feel like I'm watching a caterpillar transform into a butterfly before my very eyes. Next up, we have our European title match, Champion Triple H versus Challenger Owen Hart. Hunter gets played to the ring by the DX band, who perform an instrumental version of the DX theme song, so it's nice to see that they were not ejected from the arena for their earlier performance. Now keep in mind the stipulation here is that China must be handcuffed to Commissioner Slaughter during the match so that she cannot interfere. So before we delve into the match, let's quickly recap some of the backstory. When the Montreal Screwjob happened, Bret Hart obviously left for WCW, with fellow Hart Foundation members the British Bulldog and Jim Neidhart also being given their releases at their own request. Owen Hart also requested his release, but Vince shot that down, presumably because he realized that Owen still actually had value for the company. So one month later at December's In Your House Degeneration X pay-per-view, Owen makes his triumphant return, attacking WWF champion Shawn Michaels after his match. However, instead of capitalizing on the momentum of Brett's brother going after Shawn to take revenge on the guy who helped screw over his brother, they transition Owen into a feud with Shawn's pal Triple H instead. Now here's a list of events which transpired throughout the course of this feud. Owen gets a shot at HBK's title in a match on Raw, but he doesn't win the belt because Triple H interferes and gets Sean intentionally DQ'd. One week later, Owen beats Savio Vega in a match, but immediately afterward, Los Bariquas beat the crap out of him and deliver him to Triple H, who proceeds to repeatedly slap the shit out of Owen. One week after that, Owen attacks DX in their limbo, but they get the better of him and bloody his face. Two weeks later, Owen defeats the artist formerly known as Goldust, who is dressed as Triple H, and Commissioner Slaughter awards Owen the European title because Goldust did such a convincing job impersonating Hunter. So basically, Owen finally gets the better of Triple H, but only because the Commissioner literally handed the belt to him. Owen never actually defeated Hunter. The week after that, Owen beats Billy Gunn by DQ when the Road Dog interferes, and then DX and the New Age Outlaws brutally beat up Owen at the top of the ramp with the Outlaws attempting to toss Owen from the stage onto the concrete floor before WWF officials get in the way to stop them. After keeping the feud dormant for a few weeks, Owen defends his European title against Mark Henry, and he ends up retaining it because China runs into the ring and hits him with a low blow in full view of the ref, which she obviously did so Triple H could be the one to take the title off Owen instead. So Owen wins by DQ, but he gets humiliated in doing so. The week after that, Owen lost a match by countout against Barry Windham because China hit him with another low blow. Score another one for DX. The week after that, Hunter challenges Owen to an impromptu European title match because Owen had injured his ankle the week before, so he was vulnerable. Sure enough, China interferes by whacking Owen on the leg with a metal baseball bat, and Triple H defeats him to win the European title. And so, after all of that humiliation, after all of those beatdowns and bruised testicles, after Hunter and China getting the better of him at every turn for a solid three months, it seems pretty obvious that Owen is going to win back his European title in their WrestleMania match, right? Let's see how it plays out. In terms of the handcuff stipulation, for the majority of the match, Slaughter is successful at holding China back, allowing Owen and Hunter to have a pretty solid match, as you might expect from those two. However, then we get to the finish. 
Owen manages to put Triple H in the sharpshooter, and Hunter is seemingly not close enough to the ropes to grab them. China then helps Hunter out by grabbing his hand and enabling him to get to the ropes, despite Slaughter trying to hold her back. Owen takes umbrage with this and actually reaches through the ropes to take a couple swings at China because it's the Attitude Era and good guys can hit women. The match continues, and while Slaughter is distracted, China pulls a Ziploc bag full of baby powder out of her tights, and she then proceeds to blind Slaughter with it by throwing the powder into his eyes. Triple H distracts the referee, allowing China to sneak up on Owen and hit him with yet another low blow, and Hunter then hits Owen with the pedigree for the three count and the successful retention of his European title. After the match, China forces the referee to unlock her from the still-blinded Slaughter, and then she hits Slaughter with a forearm to the face and throws him over the barricade and into the front row. So that means, after three straight months of bullying and humiliating Owen Hart, in a match on the grandest stage of them all, when the odds should theoretically have been in Owen's favor due to the handcuff stipulation, Hunter and China still found a way to beat him and humiliate the commissioner of the company for good measure. I'm pretty much at a loss for words on this one. I mean, make no mistake, Owen was red hot when he first returned to the WWF after the screw job, and he's still very much over with the fans at this point in time, but if you want a lesson in how to completely kill someone's push, just follow the steps which have been laid out over these past few months. Now, you could make the argument that Hunter had to win here based on what happens the next night on Raw, which we'll get to a bit later, but based on how we know that whole scenario plays out, there is absolutely zero chance that anyone would have said, you know... I just can't take Triple H seriously now because he lost the European title at WrestleMania. Credit where it's due, I will give the WWF a lot of props for really beginning to elevate Triple H here to be something more than just HBK's buddy, but for all intents and purposes, this is the end of Owen Hart sniffing anything even close to the main event picture, so that's a bit of a bummer now that we know what eventually happens to him. But I don't want to drag you down too much, so let's move on to our next match, Mark Merrow and Sable versus the artist formerly known as Goldust and Luna Vachon in two-on-two transgender action. Sorry, intergender action. Right off the bat, I was pleased to see that Goldust has actually gone back to dressing in a goofy costume for the first time in a few weeks, this time rocking a silver full-body outfit with a thong over it with red and black face paint and the letters F and U under each eye. And shockingly, I must say this was actually not a terrible match. Naturally, Merrow and Goldust were in the ring for most of it, but of course the crowd wanted to see Sable and Luna go at it, which they did at the finish of this match. Sable tagged herself in by slapping Merrow's shoulder, and she then proceeded to hit Luna with a very nice-looking Sable bomb, which surprisingly only got a two-count. She then whipped Luna off the ropes and transitioned into Merrow's TKO finisher to pick up the three-count, and legitimately, Sable performed the TKO better in this match than Merrow did when he hit Goldust with the move, although that could be because Goldust wasn't exactly skipping any meals at this point in time. Regardless, Sable and Merrow pick up the victory, and Merrow then poses for the crowd as though he thought the fans were cheering for him instead of Sable. Pretty amusing. And now it's time for the Intercontinental title match, Champion The Rock versus Ken Shamrock, with the stipulation being that Shamrock would win the title if The Rock got himself disqualified. Before the match, I popped huge because my new favorite character, Tennessee Lee, came to the ring to introduce guest ring announcer Jennifer Flowers, who was accompanied by Jeff Jarrett. Even better, the two of them got the classic Golden Shower Pyro, which was later utilized by Christian, Randy Orton, and Alberto Del Rio. In fact, this may be the first instance of a Golden Shower on WWF television. Go ahead and Google that to find out. Jarrett grabs a mic and asks Jennifer, Ain't I great? To which she responds, Honey, I've been with great. And you are great. So there you have it. Double J's schlong is on par with the President of the United States. So I guess that makes Karen Angle only two degrees removed from Bill Clinton. 
When The Rock heads to the ring, he's accompanied by Kama, D'Lo, and Mark Henry, but not Farouk, even though we saw earlier tonight that he was on the card competing in the 15-team Battle Royal. As for the match itself, Shamrock immediately sprints to the ring to go after The Rock, which I appreciate. I mean, after Rocky clobbered him in the face with that chair a few weeks ago, I think Shamrock should want to get his hands on him as quickly as possible. Strangely, this match was actually quite short, and it ended in a rather bizarre fashion. Shamrock grabbed a chair and rolled into the ring, apparently no longer giving a shit about actually winning the title. The referee attempted to take the chair from him, so Shamrock shoved the referee to the ground, causing the chair to fall to the canvas. Shamrock then yelled at the fallen referee, who somehow did not disqualify him, and this allowed The Rock to pick up the chair and yet again clobber Shamrock right in the face. Again, Total props to Shamrock because he didn't even attempt to get his hands up to block the chair shot. He just wears it right in the face like he doesn't give a shit. Now, obviously, Rock hitting Shamrock with a chair should result in a disqualification and the title being forfeited over to Shamrock, but of course, the referee was down and did not see it. The ref does recover shortly after Rock gives Shamrock the chair shot, so he goes to count the pinfall, but Shamrock somehow kicks out at two. Not only that, but Shamrock then proceeds to go into the zone, where he yells, his eyes bulge out of his head, and he turns into a scary motherfucker. Shortly thereafter, he locks The Rock in the ankle lock, and Rocky taps out, giving the victory and the Intercontinental title to Shamrock in a match which shockingly lasted less than five minutes. However, immediately after the match ended, the other Nation members ran into the ring, only to end up getting belly-to-belly suplexes for their trouble, including Mark Henry, which was pretty impressive. Shamrock put The Rock back into the ankle lock, and Rocky screamed in pain, with the cool visual of his mouth bleeding the entire time. However, Farouk then ran to ringside and got up on the apron. With The Rock reaching out his hand to the nation leader, Farouk walked away and headed backstage, leaving The Rock trapped in the ankle lock and getting a good-sized pop from the crowd. Several WWF referees and officials then came down to the ring to separate Shamrock from Rock, so Shamrock hit four of them with belly-to-belly suplexes. The Rock was stretchered away from the ring, apparently having added injury to the insult of him losing his title. But wait a minute. As Rock was being carted away, Howard Finkel announced that the referee had reversed his decision because Shamrock refused to let go of the ankle lock, even though he actually did let go of the ankle lock, and The Rock was now the winner of the match by disqualification, thus retaining his Intercontinental title. Strangely, they had actually done a similar reversal just two months prior at the Royal Rumble, where Shamrock cleanly beat Rock, but then the decision was overturned because Rock had stuffed brass knuckles down Shamrock's tights. Apparently, they really enjoy taking the Intercontinental title away from him. Angered by the decision, Shamrock then ran down the aisle and threw The Rock off of the stretcher and started beating the crap out of him on the DX band stage. Shamrock then held the title in the air to a huge pop and threw the belt down to Rock, and he headed backstage. Again, much like the Triple H-Owen feud, it certainly seemed like we were poised for a title change here, given the fact that the heel had continuously gotten the better of the face in the lead-up to WrestleMania, but it was not meant to be. WWF officials can then be seen wheeling a dumpster to ringside, so that means that our next match is the dumpster match for the WWF Tag Team titles. Champions the New Age Outlaws versus Challengers Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie, although Funk was not wearing his usual stocking cap over his head this time around, so essentially he was just Terry Funk. The stipulation of the match is, of course, that both members of a team must be placed inside of a dumpster and have the lid shut on them in order to win the match. Just think of it as a casket match with banana peels and used diapers. 
This match could actually be considered a precursor to the hardcore matches, which will later become much more prevalent throughout the Attitude Era. Cookie sheets, pans, and ladders were used as weapons, including a very nice-looking spot where Foley and Billy Gunn were pushed off a ladder from the ring into the dumpster. The Outlaws also hit Funk with a spike powerbomb from the ring apron into the dumpster, which resulted in a huge red bruise appearing on Funk's lower back. After the powerbomb spot, the Outlaws and Foley started brawling backstage, where more objects were used as weapons. Eventually, Foley found a chair and clocked both Outlaws in the head with it, because concussions are cool, and he placed them both on a forklift. Terry Funk then re-emerged backstage and drove the forklift over to another dumpster, where he placed Road Dog and Billy Gunn inside. Foley closed both lids, and that means that your winners and the new WWF Tag Team Champions are Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. No technical stuff here, just straight-ahead hardcore brawling, but at least it was an enjoyable hardcore brawl, as you might expect with two ECW alumni involved. Plus, we got to see Terry Funk win his first and, spoiler, only title in the WWF at the age of 53, so that was nice. I could go on, but instead, let's hear the Outlaws talk about this rivalry in a shoot interview they did for RF Video. Uh, memories of your matches with Funk and Foley. Okay, go ahead now, you got it. <laughs> oh, my word. We tried to beat the shit out of them. We really got together beforehand and said, let's beat that motherfucker, that old dude, the old one. Because Mick was tough, but he was kind of, uh, he would work with you a little bit, but Terry Funk would hit you with a left hand that would knock your dick still. Yeah. So we we literally sit, would get together and say, let's kill that old motherfucker tonight. We knew, we knew we was going to have chairs and all kind of stuff. So that is the t- he's the toughest old man I've ever seen in my life. Yes, he is. Kids nowadays, you know, the guys nowadays, they, they, they think they did crazy shit. Um, he, he could do it. Take it and still do And more. be 58 years old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was a tough. I'll tell you, we, you when we did the dumpster match, yeah. me and him grabbed him, picked him up to powerbomb him, and we hit the side of the thing. Not, we didn't mean to, mind right, you. Right. But he hit the side of the thing. His butt. like His, his whole back was fucked up. His, you know, and, of course, we went back to apologize, and he didn't even sell it. He no, didn't even no, act no, like nothing was wrong with it. Oh no, I was great, guys. Yeah. He was great. Yeah, no, he's a, he, he's a tough son of a gun, man. Yeah, no doubt very, about it. Very. Up next, guest ring announcer slash Major League Baseball legend Pete Rose heads to the ring and proceeds to cut a pretty entertaining heel promo on the Boston crowd. He begins by saying, "Last time I was here, we kicked your ass," referring to the 1975 World Series when Pete's Cincinnati Reds defeated the Boston Red Sox. Now, keep in mind, at this point in time, the Red Sox had gone. 80 years without winning a World Series championship, and a lot of Bostonians were still pretty touchy about that. So this is one of those rare instances when someone runs down the town's sports team, and it actually works very well. Pete rips into Boston for being, quote, the city of losers, which has obviously changed quite a bit in the past 18 years if you follow pro sports here in America. He runs down the Red Sox a bit more, but then the lights go out and the pyro explodes to signal the arrival of Kane and Paul Bearer, and this is what happens next. Go ahead and introduce him, Pete. Okay, Rose can't talk. Cat's got his tongue. Pete may think this is fun and games. Wait a minute. But this is how... Oh, not Pete Rose. Good God. No, no, no. That's Pete Rose. That's Pete Rose. Pete Rose just got tombstone. Pete Rose just got tombstone. 
Now, for my money, this is possibly the greatest WrestleMania celebrity participation of all time for several reasons. Not only did a celebrity cut a pretty good heel promo, but Pete also took an actual wrestling move, which to my knowledge, no celebrity guest had ever done up to that point in time, and no, I'm not counting Lawrence Taylor, making the element of surprise that much sweeter for the pissed-off fans. Not only that, but Pete actually sold the tombstone really well, basically acting like he was dead until officials stretchered him out of the ring. Great stuff all around. Also, one more quick tidbit to tie this all together. Pete Rose's Cincinnati Reds dominated Major League Baseball for most of the 1970s, which led to local sports writer Bob Herzl giving them a rather unique nickname, which came to define the team, the Big Red Machine. You see how it all comes full circle, folks? And by that I mean the WWF just flat out stole that nickname and gave it to Kane. The Undertaker enters next, and you may recall this particular entrance. His druids come out first, stand across from each other, and hold flaming torches up in the air, and Taker then walks to the ring underneath the torches. Pretty cool visual, although Taker's outfit with a hood popping up behind his head looks a bit goofy. This, of course, leads into our next match, Brother vs. Brother, The Undertaker vs. Kane. Early on, The Undertaker was the aggressor, but he was met with a lot of no-selling by Kane. Eventually, Kane took control of the match and began to dominate until Taker was able to boot him off the ring apron to the floor. This led to a pretty cool moment where Taker did his trademark running dive over the top rope, but Kane moved out of the way and basically swatted Taker through the Spanish announce table. Very cool spot. Back in the ring, The Undertaker was able to fight back and pick Kane up into tombstone position, but Kane reversed it and hit Taker with a tombstone of his own, but he only got a two count. Taker regained control and hit Kane with a choke slam and a tombstone, but Kane kicked out at two, which Jim Ross said was the first instance of that ever happening. Not sure if that's actually accurate, but we'll run with it. Taker hit him with a second tombstone, but again Kane kicked out. One more tombstone finally finishes Kane off after 17 minutes, but he pulls the Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 6 move, where he kicks out a half second after the three count. Immediately after the match ends, however, Paul Bearer slides a chair into the ring and starts putting the boots to The Undertaker. Taker knocks him to the ground, but Kane grabs the chair and smacks it over his back. He then picks Taker up and tombstones him on top of the chair. Kane and Bear leave, but shortly thereafter, Undertaker does his Jason Voorhees zombie sit-up routine, but it's only temporary because he falls back down to the ground. The Undertaker has won the battle, but clearly, the war will continue. And now, it's time for your main event. WWF Champion Shawn Michaels versus Stone Cold Steve Austin with DX member Mike Tyson acting as the special guest enforcer. Tyson gets introduced first to a chorus of boos and he proceeds to do roughly 8 billion crappy looking DX crotch chops to the crowd. Austin is the next man out and holy crap, do yourself a favor and take a listen to the pop he gets when his theme song hits. Absolutely off the charts. This crowd is firmly behind Stone Cold, and they're certainly ready for the prospect of Steve Austin winning his first ever WWF title. Austin and Tyson get in each other's faces and start jawing, but they don't get physical with each other for some reason. Hmm, I wonder why. And finally, Shawn Michaels heads to the ring, accompanied by Triple H in China, with the DX band playing their theme song. As you probably know by now, Sean had completely fucked up his back two months prior in his casket match with The Undertaker at the Royal Rumble, and he has not wrestled since then. Given what we knew the result of this match would be, it would have been pretty in-character for a pouty Shawn Michaels to decide not to go all out in this match. But goddamn, he went all out in this match. Early on, he even duplicated the same spot from the Royal Rumble, where he was backdropped over the top rope, but this time HBK landed on Triple H. 
An angered hunter then went after Austin and threw him over the barricade in full view of the referee, but instead of disqualifying him, the ref ordered Triple H and China to be ejected from ringside. Sean then went on the offensive, including backdropping Austin over the barricade and hitting him with the ring bell behind the referee's back. However, somewhere toward the middle of the match, HBK appears to really start feeling his injury because you can see him constantly wincing in pain and walking completely upright with short, careful steps. At several points, he actually appears to be on the verge of tears. The guy is a fucking trooper. Toward the end, HBK locked in a sleeper on Austin, so Stone Cold attempted to escape by backing Sean into the turnbuckle. Unfortunately, however, referee Mike Kyoto was standing by that turnbuckle, so he got sandwiched between them and fell to the ground, leaving us with no referee. Michaels took control and hit Austin with his top rope elbow drop, then he set Austin up for sweet chin music, and here is what followed. Michaels, getting there ready. He's put everybody down with sweet chin music, and he has put Austin down before as well, as we know. Austin back up somehow. Uh oh. Austin ducked it. Austin going for the stunner and Michael's counter. Michael's going for another kick. Austin, he got it! The stunner! Mike Tyson in! Austin is the champion! Stone Cold! Stone Cold! Stone Cold! Wait a minute! That's right, folks. Mike Tyson slides into the ring and counts to three, giving Stone Cold Steve Austin the victory and his first ever WWF title at 20 minutes and two seconds. It appears that Tyson and Austin may have been in on it together all along, and Austin furthers that point by handing an Austin 316 shirt to Tyson after the match. Tyson holds it up as a confused Shawn Michaels recovers and sees what's going on. He gets in Tyson's face and says he was supposed to be part of DX, and Michaels then takes a swing at him, which Tyson blocks, and he then knocks out HBK with a right hand to the face. To this day, I have still never seen a conclusive replay that shows whether or not that punch actually connected, but for HBK's sake, I hope it didn't. Tyson puts the Austin 316 shirt over the face of the unconscious Michaels, and he and Stone Cold then leave as WrestleMania 14 comes to a close, along with the career of Shawn Michaels. In case you were wondering how many bumps HBK took on his back tonight, including the punch from Tyson at the end, I counted 23. That's 23 goddamn bumps on his already injured back, which now necessitates his early retirement from wrestling at the age of 32. Say what you will about the man at this point in time, but he helped Austin put on a great match, and he held nothing back. Nothing but praise to Shawn Michaels here, and if indeed that was going to be his last match, it would have been a damn fine way for him to end his career. Thankfully, he does end up coming back eventually as both a wrestler and an on-camera authority figure, but we'll save that for a later episode. As for WrestleMania 14, a big thumbs up from me. A very enjoyable show to watch from both a wrestling perspective and a nostalgia perspective. This show and Raw the Night After really give off the vibe that the WWF is legitimately heading in a new, unpredictable direction, and it makes me that much more excited to cover the events which transpire in the coming weeks. Overall, I highly recommend this show, and I would probably place it in my top 10 WrestleManias of all time. Now, of course, my perspective is all well and good, but at the time, did fans actually tune in to watch the show? Well, 
as the new WWF champion might say, Oh, hell yeah! WrestleMania did 730,000 pay-per-view buys, the WWF's second-highest total of all time at that point, behind WrestleMania V, which was headlined by Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage in their Mega Powers Explode feud. For comparison's sake, the highest buy rate WCW would ever achieve in their history was 700,000 buys for Starcade 1997, which took place three months ago. WCW's uncensored pay-per-view, which aired two weeks prior to WrestleMania 14, received 415,000 buys, so even though Nitro is currently riding an 82-week winning streak on television, the WWF just handily defeated them on pay-per-view. And with that in mind, let's segue to Monday Night Raw, live from Albany, New York, on Monday, March 30th, 1998. We open with a recap of last night's events, but then it's time to segue into the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Not too many noteworthy signs, but two of them did stick out to me. The first was the Great Balls of China, and the second was I Ate a Dead Cat, so credit to that man for announcing that to the world. The crowd chants Austin, but we begin with Vince McMahon walking down the ramp to a chorus of boos. Over his shoulder is, what's this? a brand new version of the WWF Championship belt. Up until last night, the WWF had used the classic Winged Eagle belt since December 26, 1983, when the Iron Sheik defeated Bob Backlund to end his almost six-year title reign, so there was a lot of history there. And of course, we refer to it as the Winged Eagle, because typically eagles don't have wings or something. That's kind of like saying, hey, check out that shelled turtle, kind of goes without saying. But anyway, this new belt is the one they will use throughout the duration of the Attitude Era. This one also has an eagle at its center, but it has a much rounder design with the new WWF scratch logo at the top, three plates on each side, a bright blue globe at the center, and a dark blue strap. Personally, this is my favorite version of the title, not counting versions which were customized by wrestlers for their own use. After some technical difficulties with his microphone, Vince says he is pleased to introduce us to the new WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. He heads to the ring to a huge pop, as you might expect, with the shelled turtle over his shoulder. Vince gives him the new belt, and he does his trademark turnbuckle poses for the crowd. Vince begins by offering congratulations, but then he tells Austin that he wants to clear up any misunderstanding about what he said about Stone Cold a few weeks ago. The truth is, he's actually very proud of Austin for becoming the WWF champion. Together with Vince's vision and Austin's charisma, With Vince's mental prowess and Austin's physical prowess, together they could ensure that Austin becomes the greatest WWF champion of all time. Austin tells Vince to cut the BS because he knows for a fact that Vince hates him, but that's okay because Austin hates him too. He says that Vince is not going to mold him into the type of champion he wants him to be, so if he doesn't like it, too bad. Vince denies hating Austin, and in fact, he says he loves him because he's a hell of a guy. Austin mocks Vince by forcing him to repeat the part about loving him, but Vince backtracks by saying it was just a figure of speech. Austin then jokingly says he loves him too, but then he turns serious and says he isn't going to do things Vince's way. He's going to continue raising hell and giving Vince more gray hairs, and nobody can tell him what to do. Vince then proceeds to give Stone Cold this famous ultimatum. Well, we can either do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way, Mr. Austin. And that's going to be your decision. What's that mean? Well, that, that sounds like an important decision. The easy way or the hard way. And if I'm going to be able to be forced to make a decision here tonight, 
I'd like your definition of what the easy way and what the hard way is. What is your definition of that? It's real simple. The easy way is to learn to be flexible, to learn to adapt, Mr. Austin. And if you'd bear with me for just a moment, please. Mr. Austin, adaptation is a key of life as well as in business. That's the easy way, and quite frankly, the hard way. You're going to wind up doing it my way anyhow. You'll be forced into doing it my way, so that's the hard way. And we don't even need to discuss that. Wow. Like I said, that's an extremely important decision in my book. For yours and my relationship, can I have maybe 10 seconds to think about this decision? By all means. What you've seen is how to do things the hard way. If you want Stone Cold to continue doing things the hard way, give me a hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. And there you have it, folks. I think we can say that the Austin-McMahon rivalry has officially ignited. Thankfully, this time around, Vince sells the stunner much better than in September of 1997 when he flopped around on the ground like a fish out of water. We then go to a commercial, and when we come back, we see footage from during the break where WWF officials, including Commissioner Slaughter and Gerald Briscoe, helped carry Vince to the back because he was barely able to walk. Slaughter and Briscoe were then shown checking on Vince backstage as he held his neck. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you begin an intriguing post-WrestleMania feud. Next up, we have our first match of the evening, LOD 2000, accompanied by Sonny versus Los Bariquas members Jose Estrada and Jesus Castillo. Chances are you can probably guess how this one plays out. The match lasts literally about 30 seconds, with LOD almost immediately hitting the incredibly dangerous-looking Doomsday device on the Jesus to pick up the three-count. Sonny then grabs a mic and says that they are the perfect combination of, quote, twisted steel and sex appeal. I get the sex appeal aspect on her end, but I don't see any twisted steel anywhere. Not one metal pretzel to be found. I guess I just don't understand that phrase, but whatever. We then go backstage where Kevin Kelly is in the arena's security office, and he says that Vince has demanded for security to use as many officers as it takes to have Steve Austin arrested. After a quick commercial break, Kevin is now in the locker room where he says that, of all people, the Disciples of Apocalypse tipped off Austin that the police were looking for him, but he said, quote, Vince McMahon doesn't have the balls to have me arrested. I'm not sure if Kevin is getting all this info from DOA themselves, or if he was perhaps eavesdropping inside of a locker, but now we have the scoop. The next match is the still-undefeated Kurgan, accompanied by the Jackal, versus Chains, who apparently tipped off Austin and then immediately headed to the ring. This was another nothing match, which Kurgan won in about two minutes when he put the head claw on Chains and the referee counted him down for the pinfall. 
Kurgan then dragged Chains backstage by his head, so I'm thinking that maybe his DOA buddies should stop talking to Stone Cold and actually go help out their leader, who is about to have his head crushed like Oberyn Martell. We go backstage once again, where we see Vince McMahon standing outside the arena, and a police car arrives. He walks with four police officers and shows them where Stone Cold's dressing room is located, so it appears that Vince might have the balls to have him arrested after all. And now we go to the ring, where best character ever Tennessee Lee is in the ring to introduce Jeff Jarrett, who rides a live horse to the ring for the third straight episode of Raw, which makes me wonder, is there a WWF employee who is specifically in charge of visiting farms in every city each week to find the right horse? I mean, I suppose it's probably just the same horse every week, but I'd like to think there is someone out there on LinkedIn right now who lists WWF lead horse finder on his resume. I'd like to think so. This week, Jarrett is facing Aguila, and much to my delight, Tennessee Lee joins the commentary team during the match. He says he's going to have a big surprise for us next week, so stay tuned for that. This is another very brief, okay-ish match, lasting about two and a half minutes, until Jarrett puts Aguila in the figure four and scores the submission victory. Now, a quick note here. This is Aguila's final match on Raw, so normally I would do the Wrestler Heaven clip here, but this podcast is already going to be long enough, and Aguila actually does return to Raw under a different name, so I feel like it would be a cheat anyway, just so we're clear. After the match, Steve Blackman runs into the ring and beats on Jarrett, and then he sets his sight on Tennessee Lee. Lee hides behind the ref, enabling Jarrett to sneak up and knock Blackman to the outside with a knee to the back. Jarrett and Lee then head up the ramp as Blackman yells at them to come back and fight. Well, this segment basically just furthered the Jarrett-Blackman rivalry, but it had Tennessee Lee on commentary, so five stars. We go backstage again where we see Steve Austin with handcuffs behind his back being taken away by the police officers. As he walks by Vince, he shoulders him into a locker and says, When I get out, your ass is mine. The officers then load him into a car and drive away as we see a rather pleased look on Vince's face. The Austin era has begun, but tonight he may be printing out a new t-shirt that says Prison Rape 316. We return to the arena where Vince, Slaughter, and Briscoe now walk to the ring and get a rather negative reaction, to say the least. Vince says he came out here because he felt he owed the fans an explanation. He thinks a 24-hour cool-down period for Austin is appropriate, given the state of mind that he is currently in. He then finishes by saying, He made his choice, and damn it, I selected mine! And he tosses the mic to the ground. Another historic moment tonight, folks. The first recorded instance of a classic Vince McMahon. Damn it! You gotta love those. Backstage, we get a quick word from Triple H who says, You might think that last night DX dropped the ball. Well, tonight, Triple H is gonna drop the hammer. The World Wrestling Federation, as you know it, comes to an X-rated end tonight. I suppose that is a possibility because China is with him and she's no stranger to X-rated content, but uh, you know what? Let's, Let's just move on. We then cut backstage to the Nation of Domination, and we see that The Rock now also has a brand new version of the Intercontinental title, complete with a blue globe at the center, the continents on the side plates, and for some reason, a purple strap. He says he can barely walk and he's been spitting up blood all day, but he's still the champ. He then turns to Farouk and says that last night at WrestleMania, Farouk opened his eyes to something he should have seen a long time ago, and he is grateful for the fact that Farouk didn't help him escape the ankle lock. Farouk is the reason he joined the nation, and Farouk is the reason why he has attained so much success, and after tonight, the nation will be stronger than it has ever been. And that leads us to our next match, The Rock and Farouk versus the super awesome amazing dream team of Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman. Rock begins by asking Farouk if he can start the match against Shamrock, but then he quickly tags Farouk right back in and motions to his injured ankle. Farouk then spends the majority of the match getting worked over by Shamrock and Blackman, but he manages to crawl to the corner and reach for the tag. 
but we get the classic Rick Martell at WrestleMania 5 swerve as Rock refuses to tag in and walks backstage instead. Shamrock then hits Farouk with a belly-to-belly suplex and picks up the three count. After the match, Farouk grabs a mic and tells Rock to come back down to the ring so he can kick his ass. Rock does return and he goes nose-to-nose with Farouk, so Farouk takes him down and starts punching until the other nation members and a bunch of referees get between them. Rock starts walking backstage again as the rest of the nation stays in the ring with Farouk, but Farouk grabs a mic one more time. He's got a bad angle. Huh? Uh-uh. Not like that. Get your ass back down here. What? to you, you stupid piece of trash. There's a reason why The Rock don't ever want you to think that you were ever the leader of The Rock, because The Rock is not only now the leader of the nation of domination, he's the ruler of the nation of domination. And before I leave, let me leave you with something. Oh, another kick Take to the- back that to Haiti, where you come from. You probably couldn't tell from listening to that clip, but the signal Rock gave to the nation to attack Farouk was, of course... The raising of the people's eyebrow. Also, I have no idea why Rock finished his promo by saying, quote, take back that to Haiti where you come from, because Farouk is from Georgia. I mean, seriously, I scoured the internet to try and find anything mentioning Ron Simmons having any sort of Haitian ancestry, but nope, I, I found nothing. Maybe Rock knows him better than anyone else. But so, after months of bickering, after months of dissension and infighting, after months of divided loyalties, it is now clear which way the group is going. The Rock has taken over leadership, or I guess rulership, of the Nation of Domination, and Farouk is out. How will Rock handle this newfound responsibility? I guess we will have to find out in the coming weeks. And speaking of new leaders, after a commercial break, European champion Triple H heads to the ring along with China. From a historical perspective, this is a monumental promo, so I'm going to play it for you. A lot can happen in 24 hours. Let's start with Mike Tyson. You know, I must have asked a thousand times, is he locked in? Is he with us? Is he a part of us? Are you sure? Is it sewn up? What I heard was, don't worry, kid, I got it covered. Don't sweat it. You worry too much, it's sewn up. Let me make the decisions. Well, you dropped the ball. But don't worry, HBK, 
because Triple H picked it up. And now the ball is in my court. I'll take care of the worries. I'll take care of the problems. And I'll make the decisions. Whoa. This is the genesis of D-Generation X. Tonight, live in front of the world, I form the DX Army, an army to take care of business that should have been taken care of right from the start. What's he saying, JR? And when you start an army, when you set out to do what no one else can do, the first thing you do is you look to your blood. You look to your buddies. You look to your friends. You look to the click. Now, of course, the man Triple H brings out is none other than Sean Waltman, a.k.a. the former 123 Kid in the WWF and 6 in WCW, who will soon take on the name X-Pac during his WWF run. He had spent the past two years in WCW as part of the NWO alongside his pals Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, but he hadn't wrestled in WCW since October because he was suffering from a legitimate neck injury. Despite this, he was still on the WCW roster until one week before this appearance, when Eric Bischoff fired him via FedEx. According to Bischoff's book, Controversy Creates Cash, Waltman was, quote, a competent performer when sober, but those periods were few and far between. In many ways, he was lucky to even have a job. According to Nash, Bischoff fired Waltman because Nash and Hall were asserting their power backstage a little bit too much, so Bischoff made an example out of their pal, who he perceived to be more expendable. At the time, the on-air angle in WCW was that there was dissension within the NWO between Nash and Hogan, so they incorporated Waltman's real-life firing into the angle. On the March 26, 1998 episode of Thunder, which aired four days before this episode of Raw, Nash asked Bischoff, quote, If you're our leader, why doesn't my buddy Six have a job anymore? Hogan instead answered the question by saying, quote, I'll tell you what's up with that. As far as your little tiny buddy Sixpack goes, it's not my fault he can't cut the mustard and run with the rest of the NWO. Remember that terminology, because it's going to come back around in just a moment. With that in mind, here is the returning Sean Waltman cutting what is likely the most memorable promo of his career in his return to the WWF. You know, when you've been an indentured servant for two years... You run up a lot of feelings. Talk to him, kid. Albany, New York! Race of hell and make a lot of noise! First things first, I got a little something-something I got to get off my chest right now. Uh-oh. Hulk Hogan come out on television 
saying I couldn't cut the mustard? Well, Hulk Hogan, you suck, pal. <laughs> so I don't think you have any room to talk about anybody cutting any kind of mustard. And Hulk, I got, I got some more advice for you. You better not stop short or Eric Bischoff will go so far up your ass, he'll know what you had for breakfast. Well, he's telling the truth so far. And now on to important matters at hand. I'm sitting at home with my mind on my money, on my money, on my mind. And I get a call from one of my best friends of my entire life, Triple H. And he says, DX needs your help. Well, damn it, Triple H. Anytime you ever need anything from me, pal, you got it. And I got something else to say. Kevin Nash and Scott Hall would be standing right here with us. championship wrestling and that's a fact Eric Bischoff so put that in your pipe and smoke it well things are getting out of hand here I you agree with that too JR where's your DX t-shirt so the way I see it right now this is a new beginning for D-Generation X and we're here to rip ass on the World Wrestling Federation Waltman, Triple H, and China then share a hug. No love triangle comments, please, as we head to break. So there you have it. A new DX has formed, and they're promising to raise some hell in the WWF beginning tonight. Now let me just say this. It may not seem like much, but Waltman jumping from WCW to the WWF was pretty damn huge. Plenty of WWF guys had gone over to WCW in order to capitalize on the allure of the guaranteed contracts, but this was the first instance of a noteworthy wrestler making the jump over to the WWF. The only other guy I can think of who did it recently before this was Jeff Jarrett back in October, but he was nowhere near as big of an acquisition, as funny as that is to say. Because most Smarky fans knew that Triple H and Waltman were tight in real life, it made sense for him to come over and join DX, and it made the fans pop that much more for his arrival. Also, it was probably not Eric Bischoff's best-timed move. Firing a guy right before your main competition is having their biggest pay-per-view of all time? How could Waltman not head over to the WWF and want to join in on the post-WrestleMania fun? Not the wisest move by Bischoff. Next up, it's time for yet another noteworthy Attitude Era moment because we get a pre-taped vignette of a superstar who will be debuting soon. I am good. I am just so damn good. (laughs) Wow, I'm great. Hello, ladies. 
My name is Thou Venus. <laughs> I've just been previewing my latest flick entitled Live Hard. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Willis is good, but Thou Venus is great. You see, I'm the real deal, all natural, and ladies, <laughs> believe me, the gift that I have, no other male on the face of this planet has ever, ever been blessed with, <laughs> and when I penetrate the world Wrestling Federation, all the ladies all across the country will be squealing in delight. <laughs> and oh yeah, you're going to get all of Val Venus. <laughs> wow, I am just so good. Oh, I am just great. <laughs> it should also be noted that this vignette finished with four words on the screen. Val Venus is coming. For my money, Val Venus is probably the most surefire indicator that the WWF is moving into a much edgier direction. We've had DX making sexual innuendos on TV for months now, but this is a character who is flat out saying, I get paid to fuck with no subtlety whatsoever. Truly, we're entering a new frontier, and it brings a tear of joy to my eye. Our next match is Mark Merrow, accompanied by Sable, versus WWF Light Heavyweight Champion Taka Michinoku in what is obviously a non-title match. Before the match begins, Luna Vachon shows up at the top of the ramp with a microphone, and she says she wants a rematch with Sable at the upcoming Unforgiven pay-per-view, but she wants it to be a special type of match. Sable quickly grabs a mic and says Luna can have any type of match she wants, so Luna introduces us to the concept of a brand new kind of match, the evening gown match. Yes, folks, this is where the concept of the evening gown match began, so give all of the credit and or blame to Luna Vachon. She says she will strip Sable down to her bra and panties if she even wears any, and then she finishes by calling her a little slut. It was also rather amusing because Jim Ross apologized to his mother for uttering the phrase bra and panties, but obviously he and Lawler will have no such qualms as the Attitude Era progresses. As for the Taka Mero match, this was another short encounter, only about 90 seconds, which ended when Sable got up on the ring apron to chastise Mero for choking Taka with a rope, but this actually distracted the referee and allowed Mero to hit Taka with a low blow and then his TKO finisher for the three count. After the match, Sable checks on Taka, so Mero boots Taka in the face and orders Sable to leave the ring with him. Taka remains in the ring, but wait, what's this? Three guys in hoodies jump the barricade, enter the ring, and start beating the crap out of Taka. Amusingly, the non-PC Jim Ross actually refers to them as three oriental men, but I suppose it was a different time. They hit Taka with a brain buster, a power bomb, and a senton bomb from the top rope, and then they run right back through the crowd as JR wonders who they were. You may have guessed it already, those three oriental men were the group known as Kai and Tai. Dick Togo, Men's Teo, and yes, the first ever WWF appearance of longtime employee Funaki. Ah, from such humble beginnings. 
When we return from break, the Headbangers and the new Midnight Express are already in the ring, and Jim Cornette has a mic. Unfortunately, we join his promo while it's already in progress, but we pick up the audio just in time to hear Cornette say these words, Dan the Beast Severn. Sure enough, Severn walks to the ring in a full suit, and JR tells us that he is the NWA heavyweight champion. You may recall that Jeff Jarrett was the NWA North American heavyweight champion until he left Cornette's stable and the title was vacated, but Dan Severn is the actual current world champion of the NWA. At this point, he is in his third consecutive year as the NWA champion, and his title reign will actually end up lasting for four years before he's finally defeated. Now, if you're not familiar with Dan the Beast Severn, here are some quick facts about him. Much like Ken Shamrock, Severn also competed in the early days of UFC before coming to the WWF. In fact, Severn and Shamrock actually faced each other twice, with Shamrock winning once by submitting him with a guillotine choke, and Severn winning once by split decision. At this point in time, his record in MMA is 21 wins, 3 losses, and 2 draws. Overall, by the time his MMA career ends in 2012, he will have amassed a total record of 101 wins, 19 losses, and 7 draws. So basically, he's a legit badass. And another important fact about him is that he possesses an incredible mustache, which no one would presumably dare to mock because he could probably murder them. And he is now at ringside for this NWA tag team title match, Champions the Headbangers versus the new Midnight Express. Cornette gets on commentary during the match and tells us that Severn is tougher than Ken Shamrock and is undefeated in professional wrestling, so clearly they're setting up a new feud here. The match gets about four minutes until Mosh mounts Bodacious Bart in the corner for a ten-punch, but Bombastic Bob punches him to the canvas instead. Bart then launches Bob from the top turnbuckle onto Mosh for the three-count, so that means that the new Midnight Express are your winners and the new NWA Tag Team Champions. Cornette then whispers in Severn's ear, so Severn enters the ring and hits each headbanger with a suplex, and then he puts Thrasher in some sort of submission move where he pulls his arms behind his back and puts his knee on the back of his neck. Cornette's new NWA is now looking strong, but then again his previous NWA had the middle-aged Rock and Roll Express, so I guess there's nowhere to go but up. We then cut to the announce team where Jim Ross is told that someone is on the phone. Sure enough, It's Stone Cold Steve Austin saying he gets one phone call from jail, so he wanted to call in and have Jim Ross tell Vince McMahon that he's a son of a bitch. He amusingly says that giving someone a Stone Cold Stunner isn't punishable by the death penalty, so that means he'll be on Raw next week to beat Vince's ass. Although, you know, I feel like Austin's home state of Texas could probably find a way to give someone the death penalty for a Stone Cold Stunner. They do enjoy their executions. After a commercial break, we come back to see stagehands setting up the old-school steel cage with the blue bars in preparation for our main event tag match. However, as they're doing so, the lights go out and the pyro explodes, so it's time for Kane and Paul Bearer. Bearer has a mic, and he says that The Undertaker may have gotten the win at WrestleMania, but their feud is not over. He then also hypes the fact that Kane is the only person to ever kick out of the tombstone, so maybe that actually is true. He says he's proud of Kane for the damage he inflicted in their match, and he could rest his head easily when he went to bed last night. But then he had a dream, which caused him to wake up. He dreamt of a match where the ring was surrounded by flames, and the only way for someone to win the match was by setting his opponent on fire. He then challenges The Undertaker to a rematch on Kane's behalf at Unforgiven in the first ever Inferno match. Now that's how you raise the stakes. Actually, I suppose you could say that's also how you could cook some stakes, but that's a whole other story. And now it's time for the main event match for the WWF Tag Team Titles. Champions Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie versus the New Age Outlaws in a steel cage. 
Jim Ross tells us that the tag titles are actually disputed now due to some legal wrangling by the outlaws because they were not put into a dumpster which was at ringside last night, but rather they were put into a dumpster which was backstage instead. Not sure why that would matter because after all the end result was still the outlaws being put into a dumpster during a dumpster match, but it's the reason why we're getting a rematch tonight. Now here's a little tidbit for you which may cause your mind to explode. Road Dog is wearing a Job Squad t-shirt to the ring, but the Job Squad does not debut in the WWF until eight months from now. So I guess that means that the group was inspired by the shirt instead of the other way around? I'm sorry, but this is almost too much for me to comprehend. So anyway, the match begins with both teams brawling for a while, with the Outlaws getting the better of the exchange. Road Dog and Billy end up double-teaming Terry Funk, and they pull out a pair of handcuffs. However, instead of cuffing Funk's hand to the cage, they put the cuffs under his neck and fasten them to the cage, so he's basically hanging by his neck from the handcuffs. It actually looks pretty brutal. Foley then fights off Road Dog and Billy and begins to climb out of the ring, but then, what's this? Triple H, X-Pac, and China run to ringside. X-Pac hits Foley twice in the head with a chair, causing him to fall back into the ring. The Outlaws then execute a spike pile driver on Foley onto a chair, and Road Dog then randomly does the worm before pinning Foley. Your winners, and once again, the WWF Tag Team Champions, the New Age Outlaws. After the match, Triple H and X-Pac run into the cage and start beating on Foley, while China and Road Dog tie Funk's hands to the cage. Triple H hits Foley with a pedigree, then sets him up in the corner so X-Pac can hit him with the Bronco Buster. Triple H then hits a sick chair shot to Foley's head for good measure as the fans chant for Steve Austin, but he was obviously a bit preoccupied. Hunter, X-Pac, Road Dog, and Billy then climb the cage and pose as it now becomes clear the New Age Outlaws are the newest members of D-Generation X. Jim Ross tells us that the group is stronger than ever as we go off the air. Now, we heard from the Outlaws earlier in that shoot interview, but how did Mick Foley feel about this segment? Here's a clip from his WWE documentary, For All Mankind, where he addresses this particular moment. The day after WrestleMania in 1998, I believe it was the return of Sean Waltman as X-Pac. It was like the making of DX, you know, into like this great, you know, force, and that was really when the next phase of DX really took off, and uh, part of that was accomplished by a pretty severe beatdown of me and Terry. humiliating you know x-pac is actually a very very good friend of mine now but i didn't like the bronco buster in the corner you know like it was kind of demeaning and when i was laying down in the ring the announcer said something about you know hey don't go anywhere stone cold steve and it was like this feeling like i'd just been through a humiliating physically you know, punishing encounter. And to me, it was that uh, the fans just totally disregarding me. And they just, they started the Stone Cold chant. And I think even then I realized, like, I'm going to hold on to this bitterness and use it somewhere, you know, because it was clear to me that although I'd gotten here, you know, Steve was up here. 
And I accepted that, but I didn't like the fact that fans so readily chose a favorite. Clearly, he was not a fan of how this all transpired. So how will Mick channel that disappointment into his on-camera character? We will find out very soon. But as for the formation of the new DX, this is obviously a very noteworthy moment from a wrestling historical perspective, so I will just make this one minor nitpick. Just an hour prior, X-Pac cut what could certainly be considered a babyface promo by asking the crowd to make some noise and mocking WCW. But now, at the end of the show, they just brutally beat up a defenseless Terry Funk and Mick Foley, and those were certainly the actions of a group of heels. It definitely sends a mixed message, but I can tell you we'll certainly find out in the coming weeks which side of the heel-face spectrum DX will fall under. As I said, though, just a minor nitpick, but overall, this was an incredibly strong segment to announce the arrival of the new DX, and I'm pretty excited because I know that we're getting some quality segments with them in the coming weeks. And that was the post-WrestleMania episode of Monday Night Raw. Certainly, there's a lot to say about it, but first, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. Cause WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, Nitro beat Raw in the ratings by a count of 4.6 to 3.6, so was the post-WrestleMania episode enough to lure away some WCW viewers? The answer was a firm yes, but it was still not enough to win the night as Nitro put up a 4.2 rating to Raw's 3.8 and defeated the WWF in the ratings for the 83rd consecutive week. With that being said, the last time Raw got this close to Nitro in the ratings was back on May 12, 1997, so they're definitely gaining some ground. For comparison's sake, here's what you could have been watching on Nitro on this night instead. High Voltage vs. Mike Enos and Wayne Bloom ended in a no contest. Saturn defeated Fit Finley. Chris Jericho defeated Marty Jannetty to retain his WCW Cruiserweight Championship, but perhaps more noteworthy is the fact that Jericho cut one of his most famous promos after the match, in which he mocked the nickname of his rival, Dean Malenko. Malenko, you claim to be the man of a thousand holes, but I counted, and you know about 60, but I know a thousand and four, and I wrote them all down. Here we go. Hold one, arm drag. Hold two, arm bar. Hold three, the moss-covered, three-handled family gradunzel. Why does he Number just four, mail us this list and we'll announce arm it? Bar. He's just ranting. Number five, the Saskatchewan spinning nerve hole. This must be meathead microphone night. You think so? He's got 998 to Number go. Nine, Get the hook, we're out of here. Shut up. Get a haircut. Number ten. Hold number 712, armbar. Can we physically Hold get him out of the ring? I can. The yeah, but you've got to announce. I know you can. Hold number 714, the Canadian. It take off these stupid headsets. 23. Wow. I'm starting to get blown up here. Yeah, boy, you're not getting Hold along. number 723. He blew up a long Jericho time ago. Screwdriver. Brandon, maybe he'll learn a few. The Super Blizzard. Funny enough, Dolph Ziggler just referenced that promo recently on an episode of Raw, so I'm glad he's keeping up with the podcast. But anyway, here's the rest of the card. 
Prince Iakea defeated Glacier, Juventud Guerrero defeated El Dandy, Chavo Guerrero defeated Kaz Hayashi, Buff Bagwell and Raven fought to a no contest, Kidman defeated Disco Inferno, Jim Neidhart defeated Kurt Hennig by disqualification, Booker T and Chris Benoit fought to a time limit draw for the second week in a row, so Booker again retained his WCW Television Championship. Psychosis and Ultimo Dragon fought to a no contest, so apparently that's a recurring theme tonight. Goldberg defeated Ray Trailer. Yes, that's right, Goldberg squashed the big boss man. Kevin Nash and Randy Savage defeated Lex Luger and Sting. And Roddy Piper defeated Hollywood Hogan by disqualification. And yes, Piper and Hogan were still main eventing Nitro in 1998. Fourteen friggin' matches on the card this week. WCW continues to amaze me with how much actual wrestling they put on their show every week when compared to Raw, although the matches are sure to be of varying qualities. Add Jericho's promo into the mix, and this sounds like it was a pretty solid show, and I'm sure they felt obligated to book a good one because they knew they would be up against the post-WrestleMania episode of Raw. And speaking of which, let's go to the Raw synopsis. I don't want to overstate this too much, but I think I feel justified in saying that this is one of the most historically noteworthy episodes in the history of the entire Monday Night Raw program. Steve Austin gives Vince McMahon a stunner and determines that he will do things, quote, the hard way, which basically lays the groundwork for his rivalry with Vince for the next several years. The New Age Outlaws are put into DX to see if they can continue to capitalize on the momentum they've built, and mid-carders The Rock and Triple H get elevated to leadership positions in their groups, and it would probably be an understatement to say that they really run with those opportunities. Plus, we also got the first appearances of Val Venus and Kayentai, whose paths will actually end up crossing in the summer of 1998 in one of the most ridiculous segments in WWF history. All in all, a huge thumbs up for this show. Definitely go out of your way to watch it, because it could probably be considered one of the top 20 episodes in the history of Raw, if not the top 10. And with that, it's time to wrap up this massive recap. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepod, or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, as several people have already done, because that helps us find an even wider audience. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will leave you now with the clip of Mike Tyson knocking out Shawn Michaels after his amazing performance at WrestleMania 14, and I will catch you next time. I don't think Shawn Michaels can believe what he's seeing. Mike Tyson waving a 316 in front of Michaels' face. Maybe this has been a setup all along. You're supposed to be with me.